Psalm 78. Uh, We're going to be just reading the first eight verses here. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As we get started this morning, I just want to remind you that we will, uh, we're going to be looking at this whole psalm, and so there's going to be a lot of reading. Um, so you just, uh, hopefully you'll have uh, your, you know, Bible's opened up to Psalm 78 and, and be ready for that. And so if you would just bow with me. Father, I thank you for your word. We ask for uh, just hearts that will um, be soft to what you say to us this morning. Um, be tender in the way of humility and longing. We pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us. Even as we sit before your, your, your word this morning, that we would just be ready to hear and, and longing to, to obey. And we thank you um, for your mercies that you've shown us. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, some of you probably think about legacy. Some maybe you don't. You think, I don't really, my legacy, what, what, what are you talking about? You know, some of you may uh, spend a lot of time in that regard. Some of you may think of your legacy in the sense of uh, uh, an arrogant way where you might think, um, it's, it's almost a sign of pride where you can be like, well, I'm going to leave this legacy, you know, and so you have whatever that might be. Uh, but, but it doesn't have to be. Legacy can be a good thing. It can be a thing of sobriety. It's just thinking clearly about your life. What are you going to leave? Some of you have parents and you're like, man, I do not like the legacy that this parent or that parent left. My family has a history of, and you have those things in your mind, and they may be uh, disturbing to you, and you may say, I'm going to break that cycle that I saw in them. They are, for me, um, a, a sign, and when I think about the way in which they interacted with us, when I think about the commitments that they had to their own self-righteousness or love or of themselves, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to pursue that. So legacy can be a good thing when you, with a humble heart, say, Lord, make me leave a pattern, a roadmap for my uh, children, for my friends, for those that I go to church with, of faithfulness. That's, That's what I long for. Because really, the only thing your kids have left 
for in many cases, you know, when you're gone, is like when we came up to that exit, he stayed on track. Or I remember he got off. Oh, yeah, he took a right here and a left there. She did this and that. I remember how she would see the yield sign and pull back. She didn't speak when she could have. She watched her tongue. Whatever it may be, they have a sign like in their mind, or like signs in their minds and turns in their minds, all these kind of roadmap things. And uh, we want to think in terms of like, what is the map we're putting forward to the next generation? And I think that's really important. It's important for your life and important for mine. And so we are looking at a psalm today, and this is kind of a really long psalm, so we'll try to, we'll see where we get. But hopefully we'll be able to work through it. And you'll be able to go back and think about it. The first eight verses of this psalm are an instruction. He exhorts them to listen and heed what God's word says. That, that's, that's what he says. These truths that are really to be passed down to the next generation. He's saying like, receive it. You know, receive it and hold on to it. Second, we have a lesson from history. If you look at verses 9 through 64, you're going to see... Uh, a, a picture of someone's history of the road that they took and he's going to say uh, it's not a good one it's not something you would say hey model that path so you have this long season here of uh, God powerfully working on behalf of a people and them hardening their hearts to him that, that's kind of the way that you would see that it's they're failing to appreciate what God has done. And um, I don't know if you ever had kind of like discussions with your children in that way where you're building the case. This is what we've sought to do for you. This is what we've tried to bless you with. This is the way we've uh, uh, tried to treat you. And, and, and this is what we've done. And so in light of all the things we've tried to do for you, your response should be, and you would want to think like, oh, yeah, the responses should be gratitude and joyful obedience, right? And what we're seeing here in this second section is God's mercy shown and ingratitude that follows. So uh, that's kind of what you see. And it becomes a parable for the generations that come. So third and final section is... In contrast to the unfaithfulness, really, of that group, which is, he's going to talk about, as you go, the northern kingdom of Israel. You have God's faithfulness, not the southern kingdom's faithfulness, but God's faithfulness to the southern kingdom, with Judah being that tribe that will be focused on, and later, David as king, and then, of course, even later, the greater David, who would be pointed to. So, Let's uh, move here to instruction. Look at, and I think it's just important that we see this. Uh, we are going to be looking at verses 1 uh, through 8 here. It's kind of like you would say, hey, just learn from this and pass it on. Verses 1 through 4. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. And some of you may say, well, I thought Jesus did, just did that, right? But see what it says. I uttered dark sayings from of old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds and his might and the wonders that he has done. 
So this is a, a call to learn from history. The first four verses is like you hear this instruction and you pass it on down. And so when you're thinking about uh, Asaph, he's speaking to them, he's calling them to worship, and um, that, that is what you'll see kind of like these ideas here that are going to come to fruition. Um, I, I want you to think just in terms of like a parable, so this history lesson, but as a parable, uh, it's almost like it's a negative lesson of, uh, about people forgetting, but it's positive in that God's promises are on display, his faithfulness, his his uh, care, his power, uh, his provision and protection, all those things are kind of seen. And so it really, it's like it has a message behind the message, a message behind the history, you might say. And so you'll, you'll see that there's warning, there's exhortation, there's a rehearsal of God's mercies, and then there's like a recounting of somebody's ingratitude. And so you just kind of see all of that on display, and I think it's really, really important to understand that. So he is going to be primarily speaking of the northern kingdom, but he will speak also of the generation of the Exodus and the type of people that have come along the way. I want you just to see a couple of things just about that. So again, you're thinking in terms he exhorts them, do this. He um, he is going to warn them. He's going to rehearse these wonderful things about God. And then as you think about it, he is going to recount this ingratitude. I want you to just hear this real quick, just a couple of things about uh, this tribe Ephraim or the ones that kind of model the northern uh, kingdom here. It says, yet they still uh, sin still more against him. Verse 17, the most high in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God uh, spread a table in the wilderness? Verse 22 says, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Verse 32, in in spite of all of this, they still sinned despite his wonders. They did not believe. So we just see like over and over and over this generation of hard hearted people who are not only grumbling against uh, Moses, but also grumbling against God. To grumble against Moses was to grumble against God. And they are a grumbling, hard-hearted people who are acting in unbelief because of their fear or whatever it may be, right? And they are not walking in faith. And so I think that's important to see. Then you go to verses 5 through 8, and you say to yourself, this law, when we think about God's law, we think in terms of instructions um, to us. He's instructing us. But notice in verse 5 through 8, there's this explanation of the law. He established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so again, what we're looking at is this is a psalm of instruction, and it is calling you, put your trust in God, see his wonderful works, follow him, and uh, do not be like the people who experienced all of these mercies from God 
and rejected him and walked in unbelief. Don't do that. Don't follow that pattern. And so the law becomes, for some people, law think, and when we think of laws, we just say, that's not what you're, that's just not, uh, what, that's just what you're not supposed to do. When I think of a law, that's kind of what it is. That, that may be the way that you might think. Uh, again, in Israel, it's, it's this term for instruction. It could be a positive instruction. It could be like, so, so do this, walk in this way. It could be a negative instru- uh, a warning kind of saying, if you don't do this, thou shalt not. I mean, those things are there. Uh, it's, it also embodies the law. The first five books of the New Testament, there are a lot of stories, narratives. So there are instructions by example. And so all these things are going on. You've got things where it's an instructing in the way you should live. There's things where it says, don't do this, like those, those kind of warnings that are there. And then there's an instruction by an example, both positive and negative examples. I mean, that, that's kind of the way you could see that when you're thinking about uh, God's instruction and what he's doing. So we say there's this exhorting, pursue the Lord, walk with the Lord. Why? Because the law comes as an instructor for you, both with example, with, with positive instruction, and with uh, negative warnings. All those things are to help you grow up and be uh, as you ought to be and pursue the things that you ought to pursue. Now, when we think about that, why do we need the law's instruction? Because our tendency is um, to walk in the wrong way. Our, our bent, our heart is is bent towards doing the wrong thing, but for the grace of God. I mean, and so we're saying like, Stubborn and rebellious is something you see written all over the Bible with humanity in a fallen condition. And so we need the law to come and speak to us. So um, we, we have to see that. We have to understand that and grasp that. Now, in the law, you also see the works of God on display. And so when you're reading the first five books of the Old Testament, you see great deliverances. You see God's power of delivering people out of really dark places. You see his great salvation in the Exodus. All that stuff, it's found in the law. And so uh, it helps us not forget the works of God as we meditate on it. And it, it but it also, there's maybe one more thing you could say about the law, is it, that it does teach you, in that instruction, it's, it's helping you understand how to walk in a way pleasing God. Here's what happens. When I think about the law and I think, oh my goodness, God rescues his people. God, this great almighty God comes to rescue his people. In turn, after they've been rescued, they are saying, oh my goodness, how can I live my life to please him? How can I walk in a way that would be pleasing to him? And the law comes in, the whole first five books, and it will speak to them about the good life. What does it mean to obey God? How is it that we can be pleasing to him? And, and so all of that is on display. It is built around this instruction to help you grow and move forward. Verse 8, so that you don't end up like these people. Look at verse 8. And that they should not be like their fathers. Have you ever had somebody say to you, I do not want to be like my father. I do not want to be like my mother. I do not want to be like my grandfather. I don't, I don't want to walk in that way for whatever reason. that They may have 
have struggled with that or dealt with that. And so he's saying, listen, let these people's uh, 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 example, negative example, be one to cause you to say, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. He's not saying, listen, listen, they were not religious. He's not saying that. You could have very religious activity, just walking around like a robot religiously, but your heart be so far from God. And it will show up ultimately. And the cool thing is to remember is that God can see your heart. God's not, you can fake me out, you know. I can fake you out in a sense. God, that doesn't happen with God. It'll ultimately show up and he sees it. And so, I think it's important just to understand. So we say this, this psalm is instructing you and in trying to get you on track. Now, the second thing you see is, in, like I said, in verse 9 through 64, this unfaithfulness of the northern kingdom. I want you to see their attitude towards God. You ready? Look at verse 9. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt. In the fields of Zon, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and at night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made, the, made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. What, what does he say? God did all these things. They refused. Why did they refuse? Why did they refuse to do what he said? Because they were forgetters. That's why. They had forgotten. I mean, that, that's a big deal in the Bible. You forget. I mean, that, that's, you forget. Even when you think about the history of the nation, God had all these festivals that every year you would be reminded so you don't forget. It, it, I mean, people began to rewrite history over time. They needed things to help them not forget. They, they needed that because when it, it came down to it, they would have a tendency to forget. They failed to remember what God had done. I mean, you even see in times where they put stones of remembrance. Why? It was a visual when you walked along and you pointed out to your kids and they're like, oh, we've heard the story before. You say, you see that stone? Great, great, great grandfather set that stone out there. After God brought them through, and they crossed the Jordan. There were all these things to say, don't forget. Because when you start to forget the story, the true stories, 
you'll come up with some fiction. You know what fiction does? What man does with fiction? He'll quickly make himself the hero. Quickly, he'll craft a God in his own image. And he will think he is the one. Don't be like that generation of old. Their attitude towards God was an attitude of forgetfulness. And forgetfulness leads to like a refusal to walk in his ways. Listen, they were lazy about remembering. You lazy about that? What what keeps you remembering? What what is it? You say, well, I mean, I, I go to church some, you know, it's like, okay. Do, do you need more reminding than some? I read my Bible some. Do you need more reminding than some? You need it all the time. You got to keep coming back. You say to yourself, like, what helps me remember? What helps me remember is to recount those truths. I need to be reminded. I've got to keep going back. I've got to keep telling those things. I've got to tell my children. Is family worship always feel like it's good for me? No. It feels painful to me. But I have not only a responsibility to remind myself and keep my spiritual senses clear, but they need to hear those things too. When you forget through neglect, guess what shows up? A little friend shows up in your ear. His name? Unbelief. When you stop reminding yourself of these truths, unbelief shows up and says, hey, here's a great road. Reject God. Don't trust in His ways. Fear will creep in. When When I see somebody that is not devoting themselves to remembering the truths of God, you know what they run to? Other things that are supposed to give them security, and they look at them and say, wait, there's no security there at all. And you say, imagine that. And you know what happens? Fear, 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 fear. And you have these people like, they're just like one little thing shakes them up. It's like they're frightened all the time. Stop telling me about the things you're afraid of. In return to God. Isn't that what you would want to say to yourself? Some people, I mean, if you're not careful, your whole life will be filled with trying to find security in the wrong thing. So fear will creep in and you'll look for a replacement, a God replacement, because God has been lost in your mind. Verse 17 and 18 says, Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Listen to what they say. 
they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Is that not crazy? Does that sound like people that believe in the great shepherd of Psalm 23? Where he says, he prepared a table in the presence of my enemies. They're asking, can God spread a table in the wilderness? You know what this guy goes on? Look, look, look at verse 21 as you go down. Verse 20, he struck the rocks so the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire kindled against Jacob. His anger arose because they did not believe in God and did not trust in what? His saving power. And it's like, don't you remember? He commanded the skies and manna fell down from the ground. Don't you remember that? Verse 25 says, Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. You remember they were like, well, we want meat. And he, rained, he gave them that like the dust. It says he rained meat on them like dust. All these stories, you remember these stories. But what you say is when you forget the the the, the Stories of God's great deliverance, when you neglect Him, fear, which is a sign of unbelief, fear creeps in, and you begin to say, He doesn't care about us, He's not looking after us. The la this lack of faith started with a failure to remember the works of God. Do you know what that led to? Idolatry. So here's the thing. Here's your steps. I'll forget the works of God. I will be loaded up with fear and unbelief. And then I will start looking for something to replace God. Right? What do people look to replace God? I mean, that, that's kind of the question you ask. Like, what do we look to replace God? Where do we look for security? Where do we look for stability? Where do we look for uh, the health of our families? For the health of our country? For the health of whatever? Where do you look? What is it that you're saying is going to save you? And you say, well, I, I don't I mean, God's the one that really saves me. Like, okay, the, then why do you spend so much time thinking about your other saviors? Why do you spend so much time worrying about the other things that you put your hope in? I mean, that's kind of the way. If whatever you're worried about most, that's on the tip of your tongue that you're fearful of and you're discussing and you're thinking about every waking minute of every day, whatever that is, is kind of the thing that you say, whoa, hold on just a second. This may have become a God to me. So, you keep moving. They, they, there's this unbelief that's on display that, that's so clear. And then, you know, I, should, I think it's just important to say, like, you've got to see that. There's unbelief on display over and over. Now, the, the next thing you kind of want to look at when you're thinking about this generation you don't want to be like, you see in verses 32 through 39, 
You see God's punishments and warnings and mercies, but they're unheeded by them. And here's what happens. It gets so tough that they have remorse, but not repentance. That's what you kind of see. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, in verse 32-39, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, uh, flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. What was he saying? They searched after God when the pressure was so great. People start dying. People are like, let's pray. Everybody should go to church this Sunday, you know. And God was kind to them, but their hearts were not there. It was not true repentance. It was not God wrought the repentance. And so, you, again, you're looking at this and you're saying, hey, God's saying, follow my instructions. And then he says, here's a parable. Don't be like these people. Don't be like these people who have to have people dying all around them for them to have a half-hearted repentance. Then verse 40 through 55, he goes back to the exes and you're saying like they couldn't even realize the power God displayed in the plagues. They miss all of that. How often, verse 40, they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or, or, or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When they performed signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their, their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent them among, uh, 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 sorry, sorry. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. Did you see that? He even struck down the firstborn. What's he saying? Take this instruction to heart. The God who is great and all-powerful, He has worked on your behalf. Yet, you forgot what He has done, and it led to unbelief in your life, which caused you to begin to search after other gods. That's what takes place. Failure to trust God in His power and provision leads to idolatry and ultimately, you, there's complete judgment. Look at 56 through 64. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High and did not keep His testimonies, but turned away and act treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked Him to anger with their high places. They 
moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword, invented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. What happened to the unfaithful northern kingdom? God sent judgment. That, that's what you see. Why did judgment come? They f- failed to remember him. It led them to fear and unbelief, which led to idolatry. God kept, and, and, and God would put pressure on them, and they would be like, Oh, okay, God, we'll seek after you with their lips. And ultimately, the pressure came on heavy enough to people dying around them. They seek after, in a, heart, a half-hearted way, God. And ultimately, uh, God uh, uh, allows that to go on for some time. But then he finally judges them. This is a history lesson to remember the Lord. Now you say, good night. What do we do next here? Like, how do you think about this? Because we need to kind of conclude this psalm. And so it is concluded. Look at verses 65 through 72. What God's going to do is show his faithfulness to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is going to meet final and complete judgment. The southern kingdom, although they're going to face uh, God's discipline, will ultimately be kept forever. And so I just want you to see that. Then the Lord awoke. As from sleep, like a strong man, shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing used he brought him to shepherd jacob his people israel his inheritance with upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand so what happens what we see is god in his mercy is going to save a people within israel for himself he is going to save he uniquely save this southern kingdom this tribe of judah and those surrounding him by his grace and for his glory he is going to rescue them not again because they deserve it but because of his mercy he's going to set up a place in mount zion a place that he loved a place where he would come and dwell with them third in verse 69 it was in judah and jerusalem where the temple would be built and his presence there would be be there for generations to come Fourth, he's going to choose a king that will not walk as the kings that they had had, but he would be a shepherd to the sheep, his people. And he would guide them and direct them, and his lineage would continue forward. So what do we say? The history lesson asks us here to remember what the works of God. You remember them. You put confidence in him. You walk in faithfulness to him. Don't be like those who went before you. Don't. Be one who rejects the Lord. So what are the lessons for you? I think you would ask yourself today, say, um, if my kids were to 
follow me, would it be following someone who is stubborn towards God? Would it be something where they would say, you know what, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of lashing out against God. You're like, no, none of us here would be hard-hearted or rebellious or lash out or disgruntled. That, that's, that's kind of the thing. That's the first thing you say. Is that, is that where I'm at? Because I don't want to be that kind of example. To stand among those type people is to stand in the face of God and face His judgment. You, nobody, want, nobody would want that, right? And so that's one thing you say, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a generation like that. I want to be one whose life is filled with being, a, a you might say, a parable of faithfulness. That's what you want. You're, you want your life to be one where you say, like, let them follow in my footsteps, footsteps of faithfulness, footsteps of humble uh, trust, footsteps of uh, active obedience towards God, footsteps of, of, of walking in a way that is pleasing to God, with my face towards Him, with a humble heart wanting to offer my life to Him. You don't want to be like those who in unbelief, fear, and in fear run to false gods. But instead, you want to be one of faith who remembers what God says and remember what, remembers what God's done. And then in humility says, what can I offer back to God? How can I live my life in a way that would be pleasing to Him? Trusting in His provision. You know, we as a church, this is what we would say to each other. You'd say, you know that Exodus story? There's a second exodus. Remember, Jesus is leading that. It's greater. It's greater than what Israel had. It's, it's greater grace. It's greater power. It's more shocking than anything you could imagine. Like, what they saw was just a small thing in comparison to what we have seen. What they experienced is small compared to what we have experienced. And so what you're saying is... is when I think about my family or church family, you're saying like, help me, Lord. Let me walk in faith, trusting you. Let me declare well the truths about what you have done. Let me tell people about the greater shepherd that has come. Let me tell them about the greater exodus. Let me tell them the stories about the greater deliverance. Let me tell them about the forgiveness of sins and victory over death and defeating all of our enemies. Let me tell that story as a church. Let my life be with my children and with the people around me and my grandchildren. Let it be this, that he, all I can say about him is that he walked with God. He walked in faith. He trusted God. He recounted the truths of God. I was with my mom yesterday and she said, you know, I was thinking about when I pray to make sure I, I, I pray for them to remind them of these things. I know sometimes it's a longer prayer than maybe you would think it should be. But what is she trying to do? Recount the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of God to the next generation. She is saying to them, believe, trust in Him, love Him, treasure Him. She's recounting the, the stories of the faith. She's recounting the stories of her life, of how God rescued her. Why? She doesn't want them to forget. 
She wants them to hold fast. She wants them to stand to the end. She does not want them to not remember the truths and to begin to not trust, which will lead them to idolatry and ultimate judgment. She wants them to be her life. And you should want this to be a parable. Not how great any one of us are, but how great God is. Not to be afraid. Not to be fearful. Not to spend your whole life trying to somehow make idols that will rescue to just walk in humble faith, trusting God, trusting His ways, believing upon Him, trusting in His Son, and reminding others. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that we as a people would not leave the children here with a story of unbelief, but instead with a story of faith. God, we need your help for that. We need your strength in that. We beg you to do that in this church. We beg you to make us men and women of faith. Men and women who recount the truth who remind others, who tell the story, who live in light of it. God, don't let us get away from that. We beg you, please cause us to be a people of faith, trusting in our Savior, so that we might pass to the next generation good story, story of grace and mercy and gratitude. In Christ's name, amen.